And we have really only about five minutes for questions. Hi, uh, Tim Hollow. Just a quick provocation as a as a lapsed lawyer, I guess, and, and lapsed political staffer. One of the things I don't think we've heard about um, is the structural aspect of the adversarial nature of our system and how that conflicts with these ideas about cooperativism and commoning. Um, and do you have any ideas about how that can be confronted and overcome? Do we need to rebuild our courts and our parliaments? Thank you. And a third quick question. Would the speakers agree that distributing ownership is necessary but not sufficient? You've got to distribute the power within corporations between their stakeholders to get checks and balances. Awesome. Three questions that you can now answer with two microphones. So I might um, take Tim's question. Thank you for that. It's very true that the adversary... And so from the point of view of the profession, the lawyering profession, and trying to get away from the adversarial image, I suppose there's two routes that come to mind. One is, of course, alternative dispute resolution, which is to not use lawyers. And actually, I would say that in the paper, we do refer um, not, not as much as I would have liked to, actually, just given... I think we got to 40, 35 pages and stopped. But the importance of non-lawyers and where we've seen successful um, in seeds of these helpful ecosystems of legal services emerging, they, they work very closely with non-lawyers. And actually, I think... I mean, it's not that lawyers don't do that, but you see particularly good collaborations with lawyers and non-lawyers in the regional areas where firms are smaller um, and collaborate across. So that doesn't necessarily dilute the adversarial emphasis. And in fact, there's a, there, um, one of the key barriers to that is conflict of interest rules with lawyers. So there is a movement called the conscious lawyering movement, which is trying to quite explicitly move away from adversarial modes of representation, and they're doing it particularly around family law, but it, it, there's a whole set of ethical and professional rules on conflict of interest, which assume individualization. And I guess this is just the, I mean, it's a bit like Melina's example of consumer law, unfair contracts law, assumes an individual consumer is your, your point of where you concentrate the legal solution. And the entire legal system does assume that. And undoing that is, well, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who's working on this in the Albury-Wodonga region, but she was part of um, the kitchen table movement that elected... Uh, does anyone remember their name? They unseated Sophie Mirabella and... Yeah, Kathy McGowan. And Helen McGowan, her sister, is a lawyer in that region who's working on, on this issue and um, doing some great work on it. It's a big challenge. Um, thanks, Bronwyn. Um, look, I'm a co-op nerd, so you just have to... I have to check myself because not everything can be solved by more co-ops. <laughs> but with that in mind, we do, we do need more cooperatives in the economy. So one thing that, the, that legal advocates can do, and we are trying to do it, there's been a Senate inquiry into cooperative, mutual and member-owned firms, and you can download the rep bipartisan report of the Senate, um, which found that um, there were just so many systemic barriers... Um, to setting up and running a cooperative at the moment that it's really made the legal model. We do have this legal model available to us now. It's used ubiquitously around the world and is very powerful. There are new models that we can talk about, but this one's available. So one thing we can do right now is make it easier to set up and run a cooperative. So that's what the Business Council of Co-ops is working on, but we need our ecosystem around that. 
The other thing that we can do as consumers, and this might seem a little bit sort of, um, I don't know, a bit uh, helicopter as well, but we can be rebel capitalists. So my call to millennials is, you know, we really do need to start to vote with our wallets. Like right now with the banking issue, um, they're getting a great lift out of the focus just being on the big four banks, um, even though the, the focus is critical because there, are, there is still a, you know, a customer-owned banking sector out there and they have less than 10% of the market. You know, we can distribute some of our wealth into other parts of the economy by voting with our wallets. We can all make sure that we do as much trade in the economy with businesses that are you know, mutually owned in some way. And just a, a quick answer to Jose on strategic action for restructuring power. I guess... You know, again, I'll come back to what Richard started with yesterday, and you know, the idea that we have to remember about power and attack power, and you know, and in this country, it's the resource interests, it's the large food companies, it's all of that. But I think the crucial thing here is expanding the repertoire of action, and I think that's what a lot of the groups that are represented in this room have done. And like I was saying, it's not just about attacking power; it's understanding power as circulation removing oneself, so not buying from these stores that you're attacking, you know, changing um, where you get your energy from. We're seeing tons of that type of strategic action. And not just removing and sort of removing that social license from them by removing one's body, literally, um, from it, but also reconstructing new systems of power. I mean, that's what you're doing. Setting up a makerspace um, is one way to do that, right? So people can repair stuff. They can learn um, how to make stuff for themselves, you know, instead of going down um, you know, to a Kmart or a Target or something to get it themselves. And that is strategic action um, for restructuring power. So thanks. Awesome. Can we give them a big round of applause?